This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Bit of Irish Gold, A Love Story. And the author is Phyllis Karsnia, and Phyllis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Phyllis. Hello, Steve. Thank you for calling. Well, great to have you with us. Let me read a couple of things you've written about this fiction, this love story, but based on true story, uh, the story about your husband's grandparents, but let, we'll get into the details in a moment. You say this, in 1888... Matt Donahue fled Ireland's oppression for his dream of owning land and having the right to vote in America. At the start of his journey, he met a beautiful young woman named Annie Rice. They corresponded against the wishes of her mother. And, of course, they eventually, uh, I guess, end up in northern Minnesota. Is that where you're from? Yes, that's where I live, as a matter of fact. Matt worked at Rainy Lake City Gold Mine, and I live across the bay from where that has, that was located. Well, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, a little bit about your husband's background, and how this all came together for your, your book. Well, um, I've always loved to write, and I wrote quite a bit. I worked in human resources at Boise Paper Company here for many years, and when I retired... I had the goal of writing a family history. And while I, I took some writing courses and became addicted to writing. So um, I concentrated on writing about my husband's family because his mother, Marie, at age 89, was still really sharp. And she remembered lots of details from the past. So I began asking her about her life and wrote some short stories. And um, then as the millennium got closer, I thought, my gosh, my mother-in-law lived practically the whole century. And then her 90th birthday was coming up, and we were planning to have a large, a big party for her. And so I thought I'd write a book because that would be interesting for her party and for all her descendants because she has 11 living children. 50 grandchildren, and 65 great-grandchildren. Well, that deserves a big wow. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) Yes, when she died, the entire church was filled with her family. Well, that's that's an amazing tribute to her and all her family, her posterity. So where do these characters come from? Well, uh, Matt wanted, as you said, wanted to leave Ireland because he hated the oppression there. He worked um, with horses on an Irish castle, at an Irish castle, the O'Briens. And so he finally got fed up one day and he left, but it was so hard leaving his younger brothers. But anyway, he started walking across Ireland. And when he reached the city of Dundannon, um, he'd been walking for a couple days, and he went into a pub. And do you want me to read you a couple paragraphs? That'd be great. Okay. So Matt, uh, Matt's stomach plunged when he heard about how hard it was to go across to America. He said, I'm used to hard work. I've taken care of horses on the O'Brien estate since I was a wee lad. Do you think I can get work on a freight ship to pay for my passage? And the old sailor said, you should. And so Matt set off at a good pace when he left the pub, where he'd been filled with hope as well as with food. He'd listened to stories about America and received directions on how to get to Belfast. At Belfast, he could get on a ferry crossing the Irish Sea to Glasgow. Oranges in the window of a proto shop 
at the end of the block caught his attention. His mouth watered. Oranges had been a special treat at Christmas until his mother died, but he remembered the sweet, juicy taste. Impulsively, he turned back to push open the door of the shop. A brown-haired girl sitting behind the counter was concentrating on threading a needle. Matt stopped inside the doorway. Hello. The girl jumped. A spool of thread fell off her lap, rolling on the floor toward Matt. Matt went scrambling for the thread. He grabbed at the spool, thumping heads with the girl as she reached for it. They both straightened up, holding their heads, and as they stood face to face, Matt was entranced by her lively blue eyes. His pulse raced as he held out the spool, but when he noticed blood on her thumb, he exclaimed, Sure, and you're hurt. The girl looked down at her thumb. Tis nothing. I must have pricked my finger. Matt realized he was staring at her when a blush spread across her cheeks. He felt his own face flush and stammered, Could I, could I buy an orange? While he dug in his pocket for change, he told her, I'm heading for Scotland to get passage on a boat to America. Her eyes widened with admiration. I dream about going to America, she said. I'm Annie Rice. So that's a, pretty much at the beginning of the book. Matt meets Annie and goes on to America. Well, this is a great story, obviously, about immigrants who become hardworking, patriotic citizens here in this country. And uh, a real tribute to... I guess their ethics, their their work ethic, uh, uh, just the the stability that they brought to America. Yes, I agree with that. And of course, very timely. Very proud of the work ethic that her family had. Very timely today. There's so much uh, in the news about immigration. Well, tell us more about Annie. Well, Annie was working in a produce store and she became very depressed because her brothers were gamblers and they just kind of took away her profits. And so she was overjoyed when she got the first letter from Matt when he reached New York. And then they kept corresponding and Annie's mother, um, when she heard that Annie was corresponding with him, she said, you cannot write to that man. She said, I don't want you leaving Ireland and going to America where there's all those uh, Indians scalping people. And so Annie had to keep it a secret that she was writing to him. And even on her deathbed, Annie, um, Susan made her daughter Annie promise not to write anymore. So she stopped writing for a while. You so had- meanwhile, Matt was busy starting a homestead. By then, he'd stopped working at the gold mine here and started his own homestead. And he started up a farm and worked really, really hard to build it up. So the years flew by, and they still had only written to each other until one day he got so lonely, he decided he had to go back to find Annie. Now, you did a lot of research on this book. Yes, I thought that... um, just talking with Marie, I'd be able to, you know, kind of slide through. <laughs> and um, I discovered that I had to do a lot of research. I thought um, I put in a lot of hours on the Internet and studied history books and maps. For example, I had to find out what New York was like when Matt lived there. And then I was wondering how and why Matt went from New York to a coal mine in Pennsylvania so I read a history of Pennsylvania. And bingo, I discovered the same man, Mr. Charlemagne Tower, had bought two mountains and then he, that he developed into coal mines. And one was in Pennsylvania, where Matt was working, and the other in Minnesota. So that's why he came to Minnesota. But he was still looking for his land. He wanted to own that land. And so he came on when he heard about the gold mine here. He came here to the gold mine and then he found his land. What were some of the other useful resources for writing your book? 
Well, mainly, uh, I well, I took <laughs> I took three trips to Ireland, and um, we couldn't find much on that because during the wars between the between Ireland and England, the courthouses had been burned down. But Leo's mother had a relative there, and he took us all around. So we went to Dungannon, where they met. We saw the produce store that she used to run, and we saw we went into we visited the church where they were married. So that was so exciting, and I learned a lot about his his grandma's side of the family. And um, but we still didn't know too much about Matt, so I had to use a lot of imagination. Now, what do you think surprised you the most about writing this book? Well, while I wrote the book, I was living in various centuries and countries and um, going into lots of different decades. And I remember I was listening to an author talk, Jane Resch Thomas. She wrote... Behind the Mask, The Life of Queen Elizabeth I. And she said that she was so caught up in her story that when asked about where she lived while on a plane, she said, England, and she had never been there. And so <laughs> that's how I felt. I hardly knew each day where I was living, and, and so it was really hard to come out of the story to you know do everything else. And so that really surprised me. I didn't realize that, but... Um, anyway, I, I went from Ireland to New York City in 1888 to Rainy Lake City here across from my own home and then heard all about life on a homestead in the early 20th century. So it was, it was a lot of going back and forth in my life. <laughs> and a lot of long journeys, uh, not necessarily in mileage, but just... Uh, working toward the goal, uh, Matt wanted to marry Annie, and how long did he work to build the homestead? It was 22 years before he went back for Annie. Wow, 22 years. So he didn't even know if she was married or if she would marry him, but he was just so anxious to see her. He just got on the boat and left. And meanwhile, she'd been writing to him that she wanted to leave her store, that she was tired of working there. And um, then all of a sudden, there he was. That must have been quite a reunion. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, Matt, um, the readers will take a real long journey with Matt, going from Ireland to Scotland to New York to Pennsylvania and then to um, here, well, first in to the coal mine and then to the gold mine and then finding his homestead. And he had to cut down the trees. He found the land and filed a claim under the Homestead Act in 1892. He cut down the trees to clear the land for farming. He tilled the soil and planted it. And then he um, even started becoming an entrepreneur. He bought cattle and chickens and sold eggs and he even sold water to the townspeople because his homestead was right on Rainy River and he would take water into town every day and sell it to the townspeople. I think it's very inspiring when you think about how hard pioneer folks like Matt worked. And, That's right. you know, it's, it's often when you hear people today complaining uh, they don't want to do this or that. Back then, there was no choice. You had to do everything. That's right. You had no, and I don't know how he ever, well, actually, he walked in the winter from Tower, where he was working, in the coal mine, and it's about uh, 100 miles here. They came in the winter over the lake road, over the ice. So it was quite a walk besides. Any and other? then there are some really interesting characters that he met while he was at Rainy Lake City. Any other closing thoughts, Phyllis? Well, again, I'd like to encourage people to listen to their ancestors and write down their stories. Many people say that they wanted to do that, but they never did. And it, it really is rewarding. I had just a wonderful time. 
on that journey with Matt. And of course, this is so important to the whole family, uh, your father's, I mean, your husband's grandfather family and, and uh, mm-hmm. all the, the extended family, but it's also a love story that people would enjoy reading. Yes, and, and in the epilogue, I, um, I, Marie's love for her family was so evident that they had this community celebration and a troubadour came here and the school children, third graders, interviewed Marie and then they helped compose a song which they sang at this community celebration. And the chorus of that song is to have so many love me. So the kids picked up on it right away that she just loved her family so much. We've been listening to Phyllis Karsnia. She is the author of her book, A Bit of Irish Gold, a love story. Phyllis, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, I've checked Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and they have it. And iUniverse Publishing, um, they are publishing the book, and you can get it online with them. And they assure me that any bookstores would have it. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Don't Drink the Water, a citizen story. And the author is Bob McCormick. And Bob joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Yeah, good morning, Steve. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you very much. Well, great to have you. And just a very different kind of book really gets us thinking in, uh, in a different way. Uh, because you say, you know, this book was to speak as an average American to other average American citizens. Uh, you don't consider yourself a politician or a philosopher or someone notable. You're just trying to talk from your heart, uh, share your story in the hopes that something and what resonates in you will resonate with all of us. Uh, it's kind of an interesting approach. If, uh, before we get into the details, though, why don't you tell us about yourself, your background, and why you decided to write the book? Okay. Um, well, I was born in Buffalo, New York, 1949, a long time ago. Uh, went to school there, Jesuit school, Canisius College, and 
graduated from Canisius and found myself um, sort of drawn to Washington, D.C. for one reason or another. So I moved to the D.C. area. I actually lived in Vienna, Virginia, and that's where I bought a home, got married, uh, raised my children, and spent the next, uh, I think it was 40 years of my life in Vienna. I was very active in my community, and um, actually, although I'm not a politician, I did spend a, a short time in an elected position, which was five years on the Vienna Town Council. At the time, I thought that being an active citizen, I, I received a number of awards for my community efforts, and, and that's what I wanted to do, raise a family and be active in my community. And that was, you know, the kind of the quid pro quo. I had a wonderful life, and I wanted to give back. So that's what I, I did for the majority of my life. And then on September the 11th, like many others, my life changed. It And I claim no you know, major change due to personal loss. And I, I didn't really get angry at the time. It was just um, a very... Um, deep sense of sadness that I was here when such a horrific act could be committed by humans on other humans. And it led to many years of searching um, because what, what really happened on 9-11 for myself and I suspect others was I had a core belief that I grew up with and that was that every you know, generation would pass the next generation a better world. And when 9-11 happened, that that core belief collapsed. And with it, basically, my, my life that I had built collapsed. And I ended up in, um, ended up leaving Vienna, getting divorced, um, and ended up in Georgetown Hospital for a period of time. And it was in their psych ward because I didn't, I just didn't want to continue. And I had some very good doctors, and, and one of them um, advised me to said, Bob, you need to get over the pain. I had written a pamphlet at the time. It was 13 or 14 essays, and he had read, and so did several others, read my essays. And he just said, he looked at me and said, you got work to do. Do what you need to do. So that led to a number of different things. Um, eventually, the writing of Don't Drink the Water, a citizen story. There you go. Quick nutshell. <laughs> Very good. Uh, one reviewer, Neville Williams, he says this about your book. I just finished reading Don't Drink the Water in One Day. This is a very important and a very big book. Bob has, Bob has bared his soul's journey like no one I can think of, and it's a great story offering great hope at the same time. This book will resonate with intelligent conscious re readers everywhere so very well put about your book very impressive and i was very appreciative neville's comments and, and several others have have really embodied my spirits on several occasions well take so, us to the beginning of the book and give us a little sense of what the first part of the book is about Okay, um, the book came after you know a number of people had advised me bob you need to write write down what you're trying to say. And I eventually agreed because I've been trying to say, but it's very difficult for somebody in my position who is um, a self-employed insurance broker to talk about our, the, the human race in the terms that I wanted to talk about um, without any credentials. So writing the book was in hopes of providing those credentials. So, and not being a writer myself, I um, contacted a ghostwriter, a wonderful ghostwriter, Teresa Spencer, um, who who turned my words into a book. And it took us a year of talking with one another and writing and re-editing. The first part of the book is my story. Um, and it was decided kind of by committee that I needed to write my story in there to let people know where the things that I'm trying to say, which are more in the latter part of the book, where those things come from. And how, you know, somebody who is in my position, which is, you know, not, I don't have the credentials, um, can, can talk about it or why I might want to talk about it. Now, I don't have credentials, but I did have an awful lot of time being self-employed and, and finances have always been okay with me. So I had time on my hands and with that time, I did an awful lot of reading, um, 
And probably if I'd been in an organized program, I might have a lot of letters after my name. But it was just pursuing information that, that for one reason or another, I was interested in. And it was a um, probably 25 years of research. So I come with a fair amount of, of you know, experience as far as reading what others have had to say about us. Um, and that led to, in the end, after I go through um, my own personal story, then transition um, chapter, and then I write about what I, how I see us today and, and, and a different approach than what our leaders are providing us is available to us. And I try to discuss that. The whole book is an effort to, to you know, add to a discussion about possible alternatives available to the human race as far as moving forward. The future so, of the human race. I'm sorry? The future of the human race. The future of the human race. Where are we going? Yeah. You know? And there's, there's an awful lot of advice out there as to where to go. It's Unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of that advice is put on the shelf and it's under wisdom. You know, and it, and it stays there. It's like it's looked at as being uh, maybe utopia or, or, you know, very unrealistic or idealistic. And I don't see it that way. I really think that it's because I look at us, our backs are kind of to the wall. And it might be time to, to pull some of that advice off the shelf and make it practical. Talk about it. You know, it's okay. There's nothing to fear. And... You know, we've had some <laughs> we've had some wonderful advice. Thing was, for me, I got after 9/11 and and losing hope. I I started looking around. There must be some answers. You know, there must be something out there that we're not talking about. And when you start looking, you know, for for real answers, not short term, but real long term answers, they're everywhere. It's like, oh my God! I lived in Washington D.C. and I used to love to ride my bike around the monuments. You can go to the Jefferson Memorial. It's there. It's written, etched in stone. Jefferson wrote it to a friend. Another generation comes along and says, what are the best things that Jefferson said? We've got to etch those in stone. And one of them is a letter to a friend. And he talks about that periodically humans have to reevaluate the systems that they put together to govern themselves and redo them. And he says it's like <clears throat> not doing that it's like trying to wear the jacket you were provided as a child into your adulthood. That's there. Um, FDR Memorial, more of the same. Einstein, you know, <laughs> I have a quote from Einstein. And it's, with all my heart, I believe that the world's present system of sovereign nations can lead only to barbarism, war, and inhumanity. Now, Albert Einstein was considered one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. That's his advice. You know, and, and Albert is not alone. You know, you can take Winston Churchill, you know, great British prime minister. Unless some effective supernatural government can be set up and brought quickly into action, the prospects of peace and human progress are dark and doubtful. Why do we, you know, to me, I'm thinking, how come we're ignoring that? I could, you know, could go on and on. Of course, sure. I've got Mikhail well, Gorbachev, Omar well, Bradley. Well, there's a couple characters in your book that we need to highlight. Now, tell us about Mr. Steinhelper. Uh, Mr. Stein, I didn't have a great relationship with my dad, and you know how a father-son can relationship can kind of um, paint your future. You know, mm -hmm. if your father sort of you know, you know, takes away your self-esteem, it's hard to get it back and carry it into adulthood. And Mr. Steinhelper, although he was 72 when I was nine, um, he became a really good friend of mine. And I would sit, stop and sit on his porch with him almost every day after school. And he negated what my father might have, have done had it just been my father. Mr. Steinhelper appreciated me for who I was and what I was. And I felt the same with him. There was no need to pretend. You know, we just talked. And he accepted me for who I was. And to have that as a nine-year-old until you're, I was probably well into high school before our relationship began to, you know, we just didn't get together as often. But those are critical years. And 
he was, we did an awful lot. The book discusses it. We spent a lot of time fishing together, you know, skeet shooting, putting, uh, just running his, his beagles. You know, we did every Saturday we spent the day together. So he was a great influence for me. And it was one that just allowed me to be who I was. And he, he was the one who first used the don't drink the water, Bobby. That's what he called me. He said, just don't drink the water. And it was kind of like, Okay. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what he meant at the time, but it became clearer and clearer over time. And this thing was a lot of people are going to tell you what you can accomplish, what you can do, and you know, what you can't do based upon their stuff. And his thing was, don't drink the water. So it's great advice. So that's Mr. Steinhelper. He's in my thoughts a lot. One of my great regrets in life is that I had left Buffalo at the time and Mr. Steinhelper died. And I didn't get a chance to go back for his services to to say how much he meant to me. I don't think at the time I realized how much he meant to me. It might mm-hmm. have come a little bit later in life. Right. Well, uh, we have a little bit of time left. Uh, tell us about the traveler when he appears. Why does he come on the scene? Um, to transition. You know, I've, it's, it's sort of like we had taken my personal story and then the last chapters are not my personal story any longer. And it's, it was Teresa's idea. I had written a short story about a traveler. The traveler basically is somebody who comes here from another place and he's no judgment, you know, no preconditions, nothing, just takes a look at what he sees. And he sees a remarkable species, um, uh, the human race, you know, we like, he calls them the dominant surface dwellers. But he, he finds them to be really um, beautiful on so many levels, and yet so destructive on so many other levels. And that the destruction has become somehow acceptable in the minds, and he doesn't understand that. He doesn't know how it became acceptable. So it's a, it's a transition, you know, into the next chapters of the book, which is basically trying to take a different look at us. You know, maybe one a little bit more removed from our our daily, you know, needs and desires. And I and I realize that most humans, all of us, you know, we're pretty involved in the day-to-day operation of our lives. But taking a, a stepping back and taking a look at where we're headed doesn't take much time, and it doesn't take much effort to change that direction. It it takes, you know a little bit of thought time on it, where are we going? Because it, it isn't like I'm asking people to become volunteers or to send money. You know, It's sort of consider another approach, an approach that's very viable. You know, and, that, and that's what the book is about. It's just consider another approach. And it's not mine. It's a, it's a very old approach. It's been around for some time. It's just not being discussed currently. And I'd like to tell people we don't have anything to fear with that one because if we do decide to make any changes, I'm talking changes on the macro level, if we decide to make any changes on that level, we'll have plenty of time to discuss it, take a look at it, give our opinions, vote on it, turn it down, ask it to be redone, you know. And and this is what we do, you know. This is what we've always done. When all else fails, reorganize the thing in the book is, and I talk about this, is several things that have really changed for us. You know, you know, seven billion members of the human family. It took us almost 200,000 years to get to two and 100 years to get to seven. We've also gone global, you know, disease, travel, food, pollution, finances, communication. All those things are only recently have gone global. Yet, and one of the things I think that I had the hardest time dealing with is the, the global communication system has made us aware of the entire human race, mm-hmm. all of our interactions with each other and with the planet. We're aware. Very, and, very small world today. Very small. Small world, but also mm-hmm. seeing war and poverty and mm-hmm. hunger. You know, seeing climate change take place before us, and then being told there's not, we're doing the best we can. There's not much we can do about it. We just There's going to be bad people. We need more weaponry. You know, I think all that is sort of taking away our, our collective and personal self-esteem, what it's like to be human. It's become very difficult. 
Well, Bob, we've just about run out of time here. Appreciate you so (laughs) much sharing. Uh, There's so much to talk about. Well, there is. And and folks can learn more about Bob McCormick by reading his book, Don't Drink the Water, A Citizen's Story. Uh, He's got 40 years dedicated to researching and understanding, as he puts it, our collective experience and our collective potential. So, Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to the iUniverse website or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, any one of them. And there's a, there's a few other topics, Don't Drink the Water. One of them is by Woody Allen, so you do need to put in Don't Drink the Water, a citizen story. And, and I, I hope it, um, I hope we, or listeners are interested. So, and I, but I pre- either way, Steve, I have to tell you, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Senior Year, and the author is Judith P. Ford, and Judith joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Judith. Hello. Great to have you with us. This takes us back all the way to senior year, 1947. Seems like a long, long time ago, but I guess teenagers in many ways don't change a whole lot, do they? No, I don't think they do. They have the same kinds of challenges and, of course, the romances and and uh, other things that are going on in their lives. But uh, you say this about your book. You say senior year is a book about teens coming of age during the post-World War II America. Despite their struggles with the usual problems of adolescence, they have a great optimism for the future. And, of course, we're going to learn about Ruth Ainsworth and and her beau, Rex Gardner. You know, the I guess it's every, well, at least a lot of girls dream to uh, date the star football player. Yes, it is. <laughs> football is pretty big in high school. You know, I think she was knocked off her feet when he asked her to go out the first time. And then, of course, we're going to learn about Betsy Swanson, a junior cheerleader that, of course, gets in the middle of Ruth and Rex. Uh, that That's pretty typical of uh, the teenage romances. Yes, and she had her eyes set on Rex, I think, about the first day that she met him in her math class. And, of course, you have an interesting little twist where you bring in a French-Canadian immigrant into yeah. uh, into the story, of you know, that gets to know Ruth real well, and and the romance flourishes there. 
Yes, uh, I'm living here in Massachusetts. Uh, many French Canadians came from Quebec to work in this part of Massachusetts. And uh, so Ruth first meets him in French class. She's studying French four, and he's a classmate, and he speaks French fluently. He came here when he was about 10 years old. And so first they're friends. They're, he's helping her some with her friend with her French homework, but uh, that's, you know, she's going with Rex then, so that's not a big problem. They're mainly just friends at that point. Well, first of all, before we get into more details about the characters and some of the plot, uh, tell us about yourself, Judy, uh, a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. Okay, I uh, grew up in a teacher's family. I grew up in Missouri. My father was um, a teacher and a principal, also a coach, so as I grew up with my uh, two brothers and sister, teaching was just a big important part of our life. And often we went with my father to basketball games as he coached. And, and so just from an early age, I wanted to be a teacher. I attended Southeast Missouri State College in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, got a degree for teaching in high school in social science and history with a minor in physical education. And I met my husband in Missouri when he came out there to do an internship. And I ended up my first teaching job in Delaware, teaching physical education history. Then we moved on to Pennsylvania, where he studied for his doctorate, and finally to Western Massachusetts, where he became a professor of philosophy at uh, Westfield State College. So then I had two children of my own. I was home for a while. Then I decided I wanted to go be a social worker, and I did that for a while, but I missed teaching, and I found my opportunity as I was working in Springfield with the Hispanic population. I went back and took Spanish, got certified for that, and I returned to teaching for my last 15 years of my work, and I taught at a parochial high school, and then I taught in a school where... Um, 75% of the students were of Puerto Rican background, and I was a bilingual teacher there. So what was the genesis of this book? Okay, I, um, I had been, I think ever since I was in my 20s, I had wanted to write something. And I would write down little poems, put them away, and then around 1980, I was asked to do a history for the, the church I went to. They were celebrating their 300th anniversary. So it was it was a short history, but it was just fascinating to do the research on it and the writing. So then I think that uh, interested me more in writing. And as I near retirement, I said, when I retire, one thing I'm going to do is tutor students. The other thing is to do some writing. And so I think this book really started to gel in my mind my last year of teaching, as I had about a 30-minute ride to work. And I started seeing different things putting together, used my imagination, and started to make an outline. And so then after I finished retiring, teaching, I sat down, made a basic outline for the book. Then I started writing, and then it took me probably about two years to write it and about two or three more years to do the editing for it. Well, before we learn more about the characters... Uh, in what ways is this novel about adolescence in the 40s relevant for teens of today? Well, I think because uh, no matter what, the teens of today have the same developmental task to deal with. Uh, you know, we already talked about their experience, you know, a first love in their life. That's often an experience. And then sadly, there's the experience of many times they have to deal with the breakup of that relationship, which is really very difficult because it's their first uh, experience of having to lose love many times. And then they're struggling to become independent from their parents. There's always some kind of um, struggle between what they think and what their parents think. Um, they're also trying to find acceptance from their peers, and this can be very difficult if they are rejected by them, and then they can feel very isolated they're also trying to make decisions about what kind of career they want. And then for a young woman, as Ruth is, they're trying to think about how to have a career, but also uh, more likely today than then, but still then she was thinking of that, and how to, have, you know, to be married, uh, have children. How do you balance all these things? So these are, 
these are the things they're thinking about. And I think the ultimate thing, too, is separation. They're making that separation from their parents, from their friends, if they go away to college or away for a job. So these are all big issues for the teenagers now and then. There may be some new twist for it today, but these are basic issues that they faced in 1942, in the 40s. Well, tell us more about Ruth Ainsworth. Uh, tell us about her character, what she thinks about uh, her her view of the future. Uh, anything that will best help us understand how she ticks. Okay. She, um, you would probably see her as a fairly popular girl. Uh, she's a senior in high school. Um, she's rather talented um, musically, uh, with language, uh, with swimming. And... Um, Despite all her talents, she still, too, feels um, isolated. She comes from um, a loving family. Um, she um, she starts this senior year really on top of the world because during the summer when she's working as, as a lifeguard, she has met this newcomer who has come to the community, and his father is a, owner, is a manager of a mill, so they're quite wealthy. And this young man is very handsome, He's trying out for uh, the football team, and so he asked her to go out with him. And so their their romance flourishes during the summer of their senior year, and it continues until about November. But as October and November comes along, uh, things start to fall apart. And even though Ruth is what we would see as a popular girl, when Rex breaks up with her, she feels really alone, and she feels like she's a loser. Well, is Rex just, uh, you know, can't figure out who he is and that's why he's struggling? Or is it just one of those normal things, uh, let's date around, There's the grass is always greener? <laughs> you know, uh, I, think both, I think at first, you know, he's coming to a new city when he's a senior in high school. And this is, you know, this is really hard for kids to make a move from one place to another, but especially for teenagers. And so... He probably latches right onto the roof. You know, he sees a beautiful girl at the swimming pool. And uh, so maybe in some ways we could say he almost uses her, but at the same time, you know, he has problems. Uh, one problem he has is his father is very competitive. He expects him to be the star athlete, but also to make really good grades. And Rex isn't as interested in his studies as his father wants him to be. So part of what happens that fall is, that his father is putting more and more pressure on Rex to do well. So he's probably finding a lot of um, problems at home. He's getting more uptight. And then um, maybe as uh, this, when he's probably attracted to this Betsy, maybe she seems to be a simpler person. Maybe she's more willing to give in to what Rex wants than Ruth wants. Okay, so that's uh, Betsy Swanson. The, she's a junior cheerleader. I'm sure very pretty and yes. uh, very popular and seems to fit right into what Rex wants. Uh, but Ruth, she meets Maurice. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so at first after Ruth is, um, uh, Rex jokes Ruth, you know, she's just devastated. But Thankfully, she has a good family. She has her. She has some really. She has two really close friends, and so about a month after uh, Rex breaks up with Ruth, um, Maurice uh, invites her to the dance, and so she goes and she she enjoys it. But she sees Rex there, so that just sort of ruins the whole dance for her. And um, then uh, Maurice invites her to go to the Christmas Eve Midnight Mass with him, and she does again, and she likes that. But then he leaves for Canada for a vacation. So all during this time, Christmas and January, she still just feels alone because he really doesn't come back to um, ask her out again. And so then one of her friends uh, sort of gets them back together again, and then the romance really starts to take off in February or March. How much of a struggle, I guess, this theme of the immigrant uh, coming to, you know, school and getting to know people for the first time and being accepted, how much of a, a, a reality is that today? I think it still is. Um, I know in my community we have... Um, 
a large group of Russian, Ukrainian um, immigrants that have come to live here since the 80s. And, um, I, and then we also, I had taught in school, which was, um, uh, most of the students were Puerto Rican. So even though they are citizens of the United States are coming here, it's just making, um, making the changes can be really difficult. And I think especially in the 1940s, what happened, uh, the schools many times were tracked. You had your academic students and you had your vocational students. So in this scene with Maurice, I have it that most of his friends that were French-Canadian were in the vocational program. And he was taking the academic program, so he felt more cut off because he wasn't around his friends all the day, every day. One of your themes deals with the sexual mores of the time. Tell us about that. Yes, I think in those days, um, well, Betsy Swanson ends up pregnant. Rex gets her pregnant. And in those days, when a girl was pregnant, you usually had to leave school or go away. And, of course, to um, Rex's family, this was a huge disgrace. So with the money uh, Rex's father has, he arranges for her to go away to a home for unmarried mothers. And in those days, that was very common. And in the very town I live, there had been a home for unmarried mothers. And I think it closed around 1980, 85, because that just isn't something that you have nowadays. And so... Once a girl was pregnant then, it's most likely that she did not get to go back to school, whereas today there are programs for girls to go back to school or special ways to transition them in back into school. So that's quite a big difference. That is the title, Senior Year. That's the name of the book. And Judith P. Ford is the author. Uh, Judy, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I guess I had said at the end of my comments, I think I didn't put a dedication into my book. I didn't think about it. But if I had, I would have dedicated it to my father, Ralphie Palmer, because he just instilled in three of the four of of us the desire to be a teacher. And I think this book would not have been possible without him. Judy, tell us how to get your book, Senior Year. Okay, it can be uh, ordered from iUniverse. It can be, um, I think it's also on Amazon and um, Barnes and & Noble, and I have a website. I think it's www.judithford.com, I believe it's. And uh, so if you go to that website, you would see how you can order it through iUniverse. And Ford, in this case, is spelled F-O-A-R-D. F-O-A-R-D, judithford.com. Well, thank you, Judy, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.